Joe, how do you say it in Japanese? Sakisha ga mukashi no kutsu o yomu. And how do you say it in English? Writer's League de Ori s. Thanks, man. Welcome back to Writers Read Their Early Shit Conversations with authors and artists about the lopsided pleasures of their pre developed, over early, unripe work. I'm your host, Jason MD, and my very special guest this episode is a poet and singer songwriter and Scotland's best kept secret, Roy Muller. Is that right? Pretty close? The fact about me being Scotland's best kept secret or my surname are both spot both. on. Spot on.、Yeah. Great. Okay. Roy grew up in Leith, where his dad, bless him, gave him a book of Beatles lyrics, inspiring Roy to write his very first poem, of which more anon, I hope. Moving to Glasgow, he formed his first band, the initially imaginary Rhino Disciples, and later joined Meth OD, whose recordings received regular airplay from the late great John Peel. Nice one. Releasing his first single, Maximum Smile, in 2003, he went on to release several albums, starting with the Utterly ace, playing songs no one's listening to, as well as publishing two books of poetry. Now, I first encountered Roy when he was a guest on Rob Kelly's Pod Dylan podcast discussing Is Your Love in Vain from 1978's Street Legal, which is also pretty ace.、Uh, since then, we've connected about all sorts of things, including Nicholas Schaffner's seminal The Beatles Forever, Prince's Sometimes It Snows in April, 10,000 Maniacs, and a slightly furtive interest in the photography of Helmut Newton. He's been to the mountain and he's been in the wind. Distinguished listeners, it's Roy Muller. Hey, man. Hi, Jason. Thanks very much for having me on the show. That's my pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to come on. Well, I've dined with kings and been offered wings, <laughs> but、uh, never been too impressed until this moment. I do have to say a couple of things there.、Um, I was born in Edinburgh, as, as we say over here, and I grew up in Leith,、um, L E I T H. What did I say? Leith, I think. I, maybe, I was like I grew up on some sort of、um, implement used by a, a craftsman. <laughs> That's fine. I mean. And then、right. I formed my first band when I was still living、uh, in Leith. And、uh, when I moved through to Glasgow, my,、um, my first album was actually called Speak When I'm Spoken To. And Playing songs no one is listening to, but it's the second album. That's the second one. All right, so I screwed、yeah. everything up. Sorry, man. That's, I mean, you know, time is a, an ocean, but it stops at the shore. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> senor. All right. <laughs>、uh, I got a couple of questions for you, some of them literary, some not. Are you ready? I am. Far away. Which Dylan trilogy do you prefer? Bring It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, or Blood on the Tracks, Desire, and Street Legal. If you could only, you know, on your desert island or whatever it is, if you could only have one of those trilogies, which would you take?、Mm, that is a really good question. And I'm tempted to say the latter one, but because I would find it hard not to have visions of Johanna with me,、mm. um, I think I would go for. The 1965 66 trilogy. Really?、Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think if I was on that desert island, some of the,、uh, the acoustic songs, I think, would be, it'd be nice to have that,、uh, 
that variety, I think, um, from the sort of hard driving R&B, but also with the uh, the acoustic numbers, like the the set of songs that you recorded in in one go for mm-hmm. the for the B side or side two, I should say, of bringing it all back home. Plus, I'd have the picture of Sally Grossman as well to look at on the cover. So, fair enough. Yeah, as opposed to Bob at the bottom of the stairwell looking around. That is great. That is great. I mean, I. I I love that. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a really hard choice. You could, I hope that's going to be the hardest question on the show, Jason, because it's... Uh, that's the yeah, easiest that's one. Just, and I, I've gone for the uncool, sort of unperverse choice there in a way. I've gone for the orthodox choice. I do know that, but... Uh, I thought you would go for the for the latter trilogy. Yeah, so did I until I opened my mouth, you know, but that's what came out. You just never know what's going to happen. That's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, there's a few... I, I might even go for his uh, first three albums at some point, so I could have free wheeling. You know, it's 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 mm. yes, the so it's such a rich uh, tapestry. You know, all the best Beatle people, including you and I, we know that there is no favorite Beatle, right? Mm. But did you have one when you were younger? Yes, John. Me too. Yeah. Mm. Why? Well, having grown up a little bit at odds to the world around me, I, I sort of gravitated towards him. But I thought he was, uh, right from the, at the start of being interested in the Beatles, I thought he was a kind of airy, fairy, arty guy, you know, the round specs, the long hair. And I, mm-hmm. It was when I read a book called The Man Who Gave the Beatles Away by Alan Williams that mm-hmm. a completely different John Lennon presented himself to me. So that took a little bit of, of getting used to, but... Along with my Beatle fandom, I, when I was getting into reading about the Beatles through, mainly through Nicholas Schaffner's The Beatles Forever mm-hmm. uh, that you were mentioning, um, I became fascinated with the Plastic Ono Band album. And I, just after John died, Christmas 1980, I, I got the last song that included the Lennon Remembers interview. So for me, that was my sort of go-to for... Beatle fact and opinion for a long time, and it's only recently that I've actually heard the audio from it, and you can hear that he sounds much less angry on mm. the audio than he reads in print. But I suppose as a 17-year-old, I was sort of taking sides, and I tended to take uh, the John side. Mm. But having said that, a friend of mine at school made me up a cassette that one side had tracks from the Who sell out album and um, a quick one while he's away album and on the other side had most of ram on it and i thought the stuff from ram was fantastic and now it's the ultimate rediscovered album isn't it which Beatles song do you wish you'd written and which dylan song do you wish you'd written is it visions of johanna by any chance Mm. no i think it would probably be up to me. Oh, yeah. Great choice. Because I am too stubborn to ever be governed by enforcing sanity. <laughs> sanity I wish yeah. I'd written that line, you know. It's fantastic. I first started yeah. laughing when I bought Biograph and heard that line. Which Beatles song do I wish I'd written? I'm so tired. Would you stop reading my mind? That <laughs> has been my favourite Beatles song for 20 years. What do you think he says at the end of it? Yeah, man. Yeah, I think it's 
uh, just a mumble. It's not a backwards, although we did spin it backwards and, oh, <laughs> turn me on, dead man or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's just going to say, you know, he's just doing one of his voices, you know, his comedy voices, yeah. I think. I, I also does news and blues and how bad's the novel? I always said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, that, and again, you know, I was talking about first impressions, that's how I always hear it. And even at the beginning of Get Back on the album, he's, he's, he's picks with the fingers, Greg, or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, is, who's Greg? Butcher the fingers, yeah, or butcher the fingers, maybe, yeah, because he's playing up with his fingers, isn't he? Yeah, like that. We, you see that in the movie, don't you, where he's vamping on the guitar, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know that, that I think I I just saw I saw Lennon's utterances as all being sort of nuggets of gold when I was I was younger. Now, not to mix my metaphors, I take those nuggets of gold with a pinch of salt now. But uh, <laughs> right. it certainly influenced me. It influenced when I started trying to write songs or write poems. A lot of it was Lennon-esque gobbledygook. attention to what is happening in the work and how good are you at responding to the possibilities that arise as you go and how good are you at abandoning your preconceived ideas as you work on poems or songs or whatever it is well i would answer that by saying i think there's a that description actually reminded me a little bit of paul williams doing um his writing and on bob dylan um performing artist series, which I'd recommend to any listeners that are interested in, in Dylan. Um, and I think that made me consider that there's a different strand when you collaborate with somebody, because they can actually focus you in a way. If you look at, for instance, we were talking about John Lennon, if you look at how the songs got banged into shape um, and purposed in, in collaboration with Maka and the, the rest of the Beatles. Mm. Little elements, little raggedy things got brought in and they got turned into great records. But if you listen to his demos that he did in the Dakota, um, he does, there's, there's elements of what later got turned into starting over all, all over the place. There's just mm. these yeah. squashing all these ideas and some of them I think are better in the original form, but he didn't have either a collaborator or his internal editor um, becoming almost like an external editor saying, John, I think you should go with this. Or, yeah, the original idea was great, but, you know, this is actually the tangent you, you should go down. So that that kind of magic wasn't sort of happening. I don't think I'm very good at it myself unless I've got a brief 
if I've got a brief, then, you know, if I'm writing songs, I did a, a, a kind of series of songs about Lou Reed, and then I recently did one about my birth and adoption. And I can sort of take disparate ideas and think, ah, yeah, that, that's going to come in from an angle to this, but I can see how it would fit. And then there's a real pleasure from sort of seeing what happens when you, you introduce something that you've had in a, as a baby started in a completely different track, and then you're bringing that into mm -hmm. fit with the concept, the overarching concept that you have. When I'm starting a song, I think I'll write a song about a bacon sandwich, and it turns into a song about um, a pineapple salad. I mean, that that's just part of the process. Um, sometimes it depends how your biorhythms are that day, what... Uh, how good the cup of tea you had, mm -hmm. whether you're getting a hit from your your breakfast cereal. It's just whether you're on it or, or not. You know, you know, you kind of know when you're in the groove. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it just it just escapes you, I think. And, and other times you think, God, I can't believe I was I was trying to write a bacon sandwich, you know, <laughs> trying to write about a bacon sandwich. But I'm glad I did because it's turned into this it's a good song about pineapples. Right. So I think that happens to everybody. I just think it's a matter of intensity, actually. And because if you follow people's careers like we have and Dylan and the Beatles, you, you just see, I mean, they're not all winners, are they? But mm. uh, there's the, the certain times where it's very hard. A McCartney ditty in 1969 is, is going to form part of a, a great work, probably. A ditty that McCartney came up with in 1986, probably is is not and the circumstances <laughs> and context of, of it might just be as good um melodically or, or lyrically but it just doesn't work mm. and um yeah it's it, circumstances and context have, have have so much to do with it i mean the, the beatles could reuse three blind mice for all you need is love and that that works and Lennon did it again in um instant karma but trying that trick and also in my mother's well, dead, line. you know, he did absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right, absolutely. But if you tried tried that on Mind Games, which is an album that you know I think has a lot going for it, but if you try that in in another arena, it maybe doesn't work. There are times where, in, where if you're really kind of buzzing on it, you can grasp anything that's kind of coming at you and kind of make it work and it, it almost seems to fit into place without you really having to think about it. Mm. And other times, well, tends to be the worst ideas that you work at the longest. <laughs> um, and I think that's true for a lot of people. Leonard Cohen maybe operated a bit differently. He, he took him years to write Hallelujah, didn't it? But for most mortals, I think the longer you, you work at something, probably the worse it is. Oh, so you reckon that you just, just you grind it into the ground often? I you... think you do. It's a balance because I'm no believer in first thought, best thought, unless mm. you're totally wired to the moon, you know, and just, you know, totally cruising. And, and maybe that might happen occasionally. But, gen yeah, it's difficult to actually, as Tom Verlaine said in one of his songs, it's two, two, two ellipsis to put a finger on. You know, you just, or as Lennon said, every time I put a finger on it, it slips away. There's mm -hmm. these ineffable things. How much how much work should something have? When does it become a three dimensional thing? When does when is it like a chair you can sit on? And and to a lot of art artists, you know, uh, 
a work of art is never finished. It's abandoned. And you look at Dylan yeah, constantly right. reinventing. So, yeah, I would love there to be an overall, I'd love to read something that sort of was able to express that ineffable quality of when a work is 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 real and, and when it's it's not you sense that yeah this is real this is this is three-dimensional this is tangible and um but mm. sometimes you don't do that for you until years after you've you've created something and right. a lot of stuff that you thought was real like your early work <laughs> turns out <laughs> to be crap triple tross trek yeah Okay, how about some of your early stuff, man? Well, we were talking about uh, I'm. We we're talking about the Beatles lyrics earlier on, and the first piece I can remember writing as a teenager um, would be "I Am the Urban Neapolitan," which was a kind of song poem I wrote after having read the lyrics, but not having heard the record or tune of "I'm the Walrus." So I can only remember the first three lines. I am the urban Neapolitan, a seedy little grapefruit of a man who tried successfully three times to die. And uh, thankfully, that's all I can remember of it. A seedy little grapefruit of a man. That's a good put down. I think I'm going to use. Well, thank you. I I don't think I knew that Yoko had a (laughs) book called Grapefruit at that point, but... uh, I just yeah. can't wait for somebody to say, what do you think about so-and-so? He's a seedy little grapefruit of a man. <laughs> well, it was a, it was a horrible little bit of wordplay. That's all I could really muster in those days, <laughs> the grapefruit seeds. And it's got, a, I am the urban spaceman. I must have been vaguely familiar with that. Neapolitan, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how it was spelled either. Right. It was neo, you know, as in neo-fascist rather than N-E-A. Uh in fact, I thought that right up to the other day when I was writing it down. So, mm. and then, yeah, I used to write things in, in class a lot, little kind of doggerel things. I wrote a thing called Kneeling Wheeling about a man who can't control kneeling. Um, it goes, here comes Kneeling Wheeling. Always got that kneeling feeling. Castandon leaves him reeling. So wheeling, keep on kneeling. Here come Kneeling Wheeling. No, he can't control his kneeling. When it's time to get a meal-in, he can't get it because he's kneeling. Oh, skinny kneeling, wheeling. So that was that was an early one. Powerful. Yeah. Sonically powerful. Well, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of internal rhyme there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then it was old man indecisive. Old man indecisive tried to draw the blinds, put a cleaver through his head, and said, I'm in two minds. Should I go to hospital? Would I enjoy the ride? Or should I? Well, we'll never know because the bastard died. <laughs> so I was probably feeling a little bit frustrated and 
I remember writing that in class, actually. And um, yeah. A teacher you didn't like, possibly. Possibly. And yeah, kind of, I think I'd, I'd, I'd read a few excerpts from his, <laughs> in his own right or something. Yes, I was just thinking that, that yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy those books, Lenin's books? I enjoyed the kind of feeling of liberation, the, the, the ridiculousness of them. Mm. I, I, I don't know if I really thought they were, they, they were interesting artifacts. I don't know if I really thought they were, well, I, f- I felt, oh, I, I'll tell you what I, I thought. I thought I can do that, not as maybe not as well, and I certainly couldn't troll. But, yeah, I think they're better than Tarantula. What else have you got, man, of some of your weird early stuff? Well, I read a book on Elvis called, about, written by his bodyguards, and which was actually published just before he died. Uh, I must have read it 78, I think, just after he died, and... So I wrote this piece sort of based on how in the book, and the book was put together by a hack journalist called Steve Dunleavy, but how these guys in the um, Memphis guys would mm. speak about Elvis. So I wrote this kind of piece. And I think I was thinking of the, the the album covers we were talking about of Dylan. So I wrote this piece called The Life and Times of Eternal Thou. And I remember writing this in class in 1979. It was a, just before lunch. It was a summer probably May or June, and um, this is the life and times of eternal. I'm going to have to read this in a, in a southern drawl, I'm afraid. Great. Eternal thou was a funny old soul, like he used to sit in his elbow and say things, you know. He was a bit wacky dude. Used to say, apple strudel when the telly come on. When Lisa Realist come over one time, well, Lee just talk it for hours and hours and hours. And hours. And when he finally leave, eternal thou come up to me and he said, water irrigating person. He'd said, water irrigating person. Eternal thou bought a car once, a Volvo, and he was goddamn proud of it. He used to drive around the player saying, hey, hey, look at my Volvo. And all the people went, geez, it's a good one. <laughs> That's quite good. That's yeah, I quite like that one. <laughs> and then I'll finish off this early suite with Leg Belly. Okay. Um, not, not Huddy Ledbetter, but Leg Belly. Mm. Born with a leg. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is cracking. I sound like Bill Clinton here, a southern <laughs> troll in the crack voice. <laughs> okay, Leg Belly. Born with a leg growing out of my belly. It's all I can do not to kick in the telly. The leg's looking cute, but the foot can be smelly. Born with a leg. Growing out of my belly. That's it. <laughs> That's a good one, man. Well, it's a short <laughs> one, man. <laughs> oh, do so, you want me to carry on with any others? Um, I, I, yeah. What, I mean, what else have you got? Yes. Well, when I was 20, well, 21, they, I was trying to get first place in the university poetry competition. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking this guy, who'd won it the previous year, how to go about it. And he said, well, you should write in form. You know, you should write in meter because they really go for that. So I thought, oh, no, that most easiest thing to write meter sonnet. So I thought I'll write a couple of sonnets and enter them. And we're called Other Poets Number One and Other Poets Number Two, potentially. Well, that, that was a piss take right there. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll read them out, see who, see who you think Other Poet Number One is. I don't think it'll be hard. Other Poets, number one, from 1985. Mm. 
Drunken doors are lurching. A liquor-fired lizard with a leather-trousered lope. This mad messiah's psychedelic devils drove him, then crashed his ability to cope. Dying at Miami, you want to see my cock? Slouching towards Paris in slow decline. At the end of the counterculture shock. Star of immor brackets T-ality, this ode of mine. He became a stoned dead Peter Pan, portrait of the asshole as a young man. The southern cock will rise again, if only to bugger up moody young men. We'll see the asshole making new friends. I've quoted some myths here, but on these he depends. That's quite rude. It is. I, I, <laughs> I think, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I did wonder about reading this one out on air. Yeah, but, it, um, that's definitely making the cut, man. That's, a, that's great. Making the cutting room floor, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, um, there was a, I was getting a little um, bit of uh, a little reference to James Joyce, Portrait of the Asshole as yes, a Young Man. Yeah, very. Um, yeah. Sort of deep, but rude, deeply yes. rude. Yeah, and also there was Yeats slouching towards Paris rather than Bethlehem. Now you know from the second coming, yeah. a little so, twist, so, little twist, yeah. twist, twist in 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 that, and just really pretentious, but sort of undercutting, undercutting it with self conscious rudeness and and the title other poets yeah. number one. So yes, yeah, and wanting to shock a little bit, but. Still, it wasn't about me at all. It's it's so there's there's really no personal involvement. So in that way, it was it was pretty safe. Did you sort of in the early days with your writing, both poetry and music? Maybe I don't know. I don't know mm. how they're different for you. But was part of it wanting to shock, get some attention? I ask just because I wrote a lot of sort of terrible, horrible, offensive poetry, just to. Hey, that guy's nuts, man. Like, yeah. He writes poems about Hitler and and vaginas and Hitler's vagina. Yeah. <laughs> Was that part of it for you too in the early days? Uh yes. You're right. <laughs> That's a one-word answer. And uh <laughs> I, I, I could expound on that, but I don't definitely there's a duality there. I I, I grew up been very polite and, and still am in, in, in certain circumstances. I'm not a, uh, there's part of me that wants to do that. And that part of me is the one that said, okay, yes, stick this, stick this poem in. Shall I, shall I do it? Shall I do it? Yes, I'll do it. And it's not the same part of me that would necessarily be on display at a party or walk into a room and, and start telling jokes. It was sort of an introvert's, um, Release in a way, I would say, if that makes any sense. Yes, it, is, it yeah, does. So, yeah, um, I'll I'll read other poets number two. Okay, see if you can tell who this is. It's got a really perfunctory opening. Four words. Other poets number two. This man is Jewish. He has rambling on his mind. He has a beard. He is balding and influential. And the Zimmerman telegrams blowing in the wind say, feed the poets, please be deferential. Eyeing the grocery boys, this man in the Safeway, 
heritage in his head and a bag of fast foods. His shopping list of images, he sets out his tray. Come buy my wares, come check out my goods. Morning, the apple is stretching again. The subway, the howl and the longshoremen. Anarchist mind now arise after slumber. While young Spanish writers, they practice the rumba. It might be waiters, I couldn't read my writing there. In Lysergic <laughs> Vision number 309, he picks up the phone and Blake's on the line. Do you remember when you sort of wrote a, I don't know, a poem or a song or anything where you thought, this is the first time my voice has come out. I'm I'm no longer copying or aping or... Yeah. Yeah, it took me years. And I kind of remember how it goes. I wrote a song called I Remember Dreams. Um, and I thought this is the first time that I've really expressed something in me that maybe hasn't been expressed uh, because I don't know how common it is, but I do remember dreams I had when I was four and, and five and things, um, not in kind of glorious total recall, but then dreams are a nebulous thing anyway. And I sort of tied that in with having had all my life sleep, sleeping problems. And um, But it sounded, when I put it all together, it sounded personal to me, but still kind of, had a universality to it, you know, and I thought this is the first time that I've really done that in a, in a song that's not so personal that it's got no chance of ever of being any good, let alone being performed. Where I've just been prosaic and it's not flown, it's not become three D, if you like. This is an actual song, and I've actually expressed something that is personal to me, and I find that with. Um, repurposing songs. I recently, well, I wrote a book of poetry on my adoption, as I mentioned earlier, and mm -hmm. the circumstances of my adoption and being conceived in Toronto and born in Edinburgh and how all that came to be. I found, I've gone back to some songs that I used to, that I thought were good tunes, but never, never quite found the place. So I had a song about seeing, about what to me is a kind of haunting thought that I never met my mother and she died a year before I got my adoption records opened. But for one, I don't know how long it was, for a few hours maybe, for a few minutes, my sort of newborn eyes were looking at her for the only time ever. Mm. I spent a lot of time inside the womb. I'd crossed the Atlantic in a, inside the womb, but this is the only time I as a sentient human being, and I don't know how much vision or awareness I possibly could have had. That moment, I wanted to put into a song. And I thought, well, I've got this song I wrote 
years ago called Staring You Right in the Face. And the tune, I'm not used the tune for anything else. I think the tune's still quite good. The title would be appropriate. So why don't I repurpose it? Mm-hmm. And when I started the song, I think it was late 80s, uh, and I recorded it with a guy who was used to be in a band with and we jammed things. And then I was in a sort of studio band with this other guy and we did a few versions. And initially it was just wordplay. I was over-influenced by Elvis Costello at that time and all the puns and decades of word junk, you know, that, that were making their way into my songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll read you a little bit of the the initial lyrics. Okay. In the school of hard knocks, all those soft touches go through hellfire to find the easy way out. Stand with the others waiting to be has-beens, been there myself. How else could I find out? The world is staring you right in the face, daring you to keep the pace, staring you right in the face. Your clothes work so well, give them some time off. I love to see you the minute that you wake. You've come so far beyond times that you were too far gone, caught in the sunlight, found there by mistake, staring you right in the face. So that was, you know, I, I like the line about your clothes work so well, give them some time off. I thought yeah, that was quite clever. That is quite good, actually. <laughs> Nobody ever got it and it never worked. And then uh, then I redrafted and it got kind of Dylan-y kind of verse. You were broken winged, said the restless king. Now you're everything. You've picked yourself up off the floor. And and uh, so that kind mm. of it worked well for you, and that referred back to your clothes working well for you. I don't know what the it was, but yeah, I kind of like that was my sort of visual love and fame moment you know, with the mm. wings and kings. Um, right. And then I thought, no, I can use this, and I can make it into an actual song about my thoughts and feelings about something about my actual first few moments of being alive. So what I ended up was with. I started with the word and, which I still think is a very daring thing to do in a song or a a poem. And everyone has their entrances and exits. So that's a line from, is it Hamlet? Yeah, something, it's Shakespeare anyway. And everyone has their entrances and exits. And my entrance to this world was followed by a fast escape, which is my mother leaving to go back to Toronto. Mm -hmm. What will I do in this place you brought me to? Will I live a life of shameful waste? So I brought, I think I brought that back from the earlier draft, staring you right in the face. So this time I'm staring her in the face, staring you right in the face. Mother of mine, there's only one time I'm staring you right in the face. And then second verse, everyone clears away childhood souvenirs as unwanted. One day they're haunted by what was and wasn't there. And that was influenced um, by John John Prine. You know John Prine? Mm, Yes. He had a lovely song called Souvenirs, which my cousin Chris uh, used to perform, and he is my mother's nephew, so it seemed appropriate to have reference to that song. So everyone clears away childhood souvenirs as unwanted. One day they're haunted by what was and wasn't there. What will I be? What will I be? No one, I think, is in my tree. Mm. Father of mine, there won't be a time I'm staring you right in the face. So I was never in the same room as my father, knowingly anyway. Um, And I didn't know. I couldn't say, mother, don't go away in such haste, staring you right in the face, staring you right in the face. Mother of mine, with baby eyes blind, I'm staring you right in the face. So you can tell I've worked in a couple of Lennon bits there for my own fancy. No one, I think, is in my tree. I Mm -hmm. think that 
as well as being a sort of song of psychedelic displacement, kind of applies to a, or just somebody feels a bit, they don't fit as I often have. And also a newborn baby, a bit out of it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be drug induced. Sure. And the mother, the kind of reference to, well, I don't start primaling at the end of the song, you'd be glad to know, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So so that's how a song got, um, became real to me after having been a, a confection for, for, for many decades. I've always written stuff. I, mean, I don't have it all, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't mm. know. I don't have record of everything I've, I've produced. But I've, I can see, looking back at my teenage self, even amongst the wordplay and things like that, there's a there's an energy to try and get something out. And I, I was maybe sort of semi-conscious of the fact that I would have to start with gibberish before I could get to expression. But the mm. gibberish in itself, I can see the expression in there. I can see perennial themes, things that I'm still, still dealing in. with. In yeah, still dealing yeah. with, not just the pop cult, not just because I still like the Beatles. Um, you know, there are there are things in there that are perpetually going to excite and trouble me mm. that I can see in, in those pieces. Roy, when you were younger, were you drawn to friends who were also producing stuff or did you sort of have a mix of people? Yeah, I mean, I was drawn to anybody that wasn't beating me up, really. I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was useful. Think, yes. Yeah, any port in a storm. Come in, she said, I'll give you. If, you. You can find people that kind of think in similar ways that don't necessarily um, perform or, 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 or write stuff, but they have a, they've got a similar way of looking at the world. So I think I was drawn to that. But I also realised quite early on that creative people are, weren't always the nicest People, I remember being given a lift up, <laughs> as we say, uh, yes, in the UK. I don't know what the Canadian or Japanese version is, but given a car ride up to um, a friend's house, and this was a friend, my friend Mark, that I formed the band, initially imaginary band, the Rhino Disciples, with. Mm -hmm. So these two guys, they were sons of the one of the music teachers at school, and they played. They were sort of multi instrumentalists, and they played the horn. They, they sort of formed their own horn section. They later turned up, I'm not going to say their names for libel reasons or the name of the group they played with, but they later turned up on top of the Pops uh, playing behind a, a well-known early 80s British group. And I Smiths? was almost... No. Good. I'm, right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was almost throwing things at the telly. How can these guys be on there? Because I knew what they were like. Because they'd, offer, because they'd offered me this lift in the car. I was in the back seat of the car. They were in the two front seats. And... We were going up the street in Edinburgh, Broughton Street. This black guy appears on the pavement. They roll down the window of the car and start shouting abuse at him. And I, I knew that they'd flirted. They had a kind of schoolboy flirtation with being, you Quats. can never tell whether it was, yeah, yeah. fascist. You know, you can never tell yeah. whether it was tongue in cheek <laughs> or not. Right. Uh, that was one of the disconcerting things about it. But here it wasn't. They were shouting racial abuse. I slid from the back seat right onto the floor of the car. I didn't know what to do. You know, my higher self going back would like to have got out of the car and gone up to the guy and said, I'm not with these guys. Yeah. You know, you're welcome here. You're welcome anywhere. You know, shoot me his hand. But he'd have probably thought I was going to, given what they were shouting, you know. So I was, so I, I can't remember what I, was, I just must have sat in silence for the rest of the journey. I felt impotent in my lack of response other than trying to disappear from the situation. Mm. I thought, you racist bastards. And I've never... When I think of these guys, or I see them mentioned, that's what I always think about them. So right. they were creative guys. They were musicians. 
and they were absolute, you know, supply your own epithet. I, I, so I knew, <laughs> I knew that the people that were doing things that I might aspire to myself, like making music, weren't always the nicest people to, to hang around with. So yeah, I just took it where it came. Can you talk about songs from from Be My Baby? Sure. I, that really is my lockdown project. I'm not going to say lockdown because there aren't enough parentheses in existence to go uh, either side of that word. But I always knew I was adopted. And I used to get told by my mum, Molly, who adopted me, that I was special. And I was. they were fortunate because they got to choose me and if they had me another way they wouldn't have chosen me and all this and so it was it was always there and but it wasn't until I was in my early 50s that I actually found that I could get my adoption records opened and I could actually see the details more details about my uh, the start of my life and who I was literally who I was so to cut a long story short once I had my records opened, uh, I found that uh, my mother was a Canadian reporter and journalist. She worked for a, a newspaper called the Toronto Telegram. And after, although his name wasn't in the records, my father, I later found, was a, a, a photojournalist who worked in the same paper. So they had a, a extramarital affair. He was married and she wasn't. And I must have been conceived about the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Uh, and Toronto, while I see the photographs of a city that looks very, what's like a mini New York, there's tailfin cars and there's neon signs everywhere. For a, a pregnant woman in Toronto in 1962, you ran the risk of being penned together with other unmarried women in more or less a house of correction. Even somebody who had a a job like like, like my mother would be, given very little dignity. So it was it was very repressed. Although they visually now I'm looking at the pictures of, of that era and I'm thinking, my God, you know, this is it looks like a really happening city. It had a very, very uh, regressive view of uh, of certain social issues at that point. So she mm. made the choice to she wanted to have her baby in secret. So I'm, I don't know the exact chronology, but she made her way over to Edinburgh. And again, I don't know exactly why. Was she Scottish? No, her background was her mother's side were English and Irish, mainly Irish. And her, her surname is Hoffman. So her, her line came from Germany in the late 1600s. They went over to New Jersey and then to Upper Canada, as it was known then. So yeah. she had no... Scottish connection. My father's name was Kennedy, which I think having researched possibly was Irish rather than Scottish mm. Kennedy, but there's a lot of to and proing between the two countries. She might have had a romantic notion about, you know, if I'd been born with my actual with my father's surname, I'd have been Kennedy. So she, maybe that there was something like that in there. Uh, but luckily we had the NHS. So we were able to 
you know, the UK had a very developed health system and had had since 1948. Mm. So it was a good place for it to come from that point of view. My father's brother, I think, had made quite a bit of, well, I know had made quite a bit of money by that time. He was a used car salesman, and he, but a very successful one. So he was probably able to help fund the trip. This is speculation, but... You don't really know? I don't really know. I don't mm. really know, and that keeps me coming back to it. Will I ever really know the anything about it? Right, yeah, yeah. Exactly, because the manifests for voyages, if she came by ship, you can't get access to records. They weren't kept beyond 1960, and I was born in 63. And uh, airline manifests, they aren't available for transatlantic flights in that period. They are for internal flights in North America. but So there's all these holes, so I can't, I can't check. But mm. it was fascinating. I, I thought, well, I'm as, kind of as much Canadian in a way, because my, both my parents uh, were Canadian, and I was conceived in Toronto. You know, So I'm actually beginning to see my own birth circumstances almost kind of objective, almost like it's not really me. And of course it isn't really me because it's happening to this guy called James Seymour Hoffman. I was born with my mother's name because the father's identity wasn't given. It's happening to this guy who, you know, it's my sort of my twin really. And he's the other me. He's got a different name, but he is me. And mm. so it was interesting. I thought I, I, there's something here I can get into. So I, I, I put together a series of poems about it and they got, they got published in a small sort of local imprint. Mm. But the poems didn't get as close as the songs, because as I was saying earlier, with music you have these tools of melody and arrangement and things that you can hopefully get close to expressing certain emotions that where the words might, you might not have the words for. And I, when I was put, putting the songs together, I was... I was trying to, in certain places, evoke the era. There's a couple of wee references to the the pop music of the time when she would be listening to the radio and I would be in her room. And, yeah, there's a lot of imagining things, and I'm aware that lots of it wouldn't probably be exactly as it happened. But I've furthered my own understanding, I think. I placed myself in that time space in Toronto and in Edinburgh around my my mother and maybe all I'm doing is making more of a mythology and it's not really the real Carol Hoffman, my mother. Mm. But I, I'd like to think that at least some of it I've, I've got inside her thoughts and situation. So to be this pregnant lady with a North American accent in a world that was much less glamorous, but more liberal, as it turned out, than Ontario was at the time, I'd like to think I have a bit of an insight into that, but I, I don't really know. But my feeling of being part of the story, of being involved in the story, of meeting her, of her being around, of being in the sort of almost holding her hand, and also my Molly and Peter, my adoptive parents, who, who my Peter died when I was 19 and uh, Molly when I was uh, 45. I, I like to feel that I'm speaking to them and they're with me in the in, in the sweet songs as well because there's unfinished business there. Mm. Last time I saw my father, we were having an argument and then he 
he died a few days later. So that, there's unfinished business. I still dream about that. Still have dreams where he comes back alive and it's all been a terrible mistake. So there's that kind of thing, haunt, stuff that sort of haunts me that I feel I can, when I go into the space that the songs afford me, that I'm outside the restrictions. I know this sounds a bit pretentious, but I'm sort of outside the restrictions of linear time that mm-hmm. the songs are almost like a pop-up theatre where I can... I can go in and there they are and I can be am- among them for a little bit of time and it makes me feel better about things. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it has made things more real for me and it's been a source of comfort for me, although I am aware that in certain aspects I've maybe moved further away rather than closer to the truth where my imagination is, has taken hold. All, all writing, the kind of writing that I've ever done that's not been jokey or pastiche has been identity based and trying to make sense of who I am and who I've been over the years and trying to work out why I've done certain things. And Hmm. I suppose sort of trying to solve regret in a way. And so this became the ultimate story of identity. I mean, who really, you know, who's, whose features have I got here? I remember saying that to my mother, to my adopted mum when I was 15. You know, well, I didn't say it to her. I wrote her a letter because I was too embarrassed to bring the subject up. And I said, do you have any information on where I come from? Because I, I want to know when I look in the mirror whose features and whose eyes are looking back at me and th- that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. she she had the form that my birth mother had formed and filled in at the adoption agency, which gave me a bit of detail, although some of it had been, wasn't, totally accurate. So I had a little bit there, but uh, for the ensuing three and a half decades, I had no more to go on. So suddenly at this advanced age, to have this avalanche of of facts, not always complete, but uh, enough to really start an investigation and to start my imagination for him. It was quite something. You've got a 13-year-old son, is that right? Yeah, and when he was born, Jason, that was the first time I remember thinking this. There was there was two. Well, one wasn't a thought. One was just absolute. There's three thoughts. One was more a feeling than a thought. It was absolute elation, a pure high. Mm. That was amazing because the other thought was, "Thank goodness my wife Emma was okay because it was a C-section and you know I was wearing the scrubs. I'd seen it. I'd seen everything. You know, and thank goodness she's okay and the, the baby's okay. The third thought was, this is the first time in my life age of 44 that I have ever looked at another human being and knowing that I was a blood relation of them. Mm. And that was, that was really a powerful realization. And yeah, so to spend all that time as a spaceman, really, you know, also somebody of various neural diversities as well. So never kind of feeling like you really belong. I know this sounds cliche, but it's true. Never really feeling like you, you fit in. Hmm. To then go from that to having another person there that, that looks like you, um, because my son <laughs> looks like both of us, and, you know, is you in many ways. And now, now I've been in the room, I've been in a room, I've spent time, I've mean, spent a lot of meaningful time with people that I'm half sisters, half brothers, aunts, cousins. Mm-hmm. It's a total turnaround. And I look back at the person that I thought I was, and I, I, it's 
yeah, that's ineffable to me. I might maybe once I'm done with this project, I'll. I don't think. Well, I'm being disingenuous because I'm never. This is going to be the project, and I'll probably just keep refining it. There's there's more than enough to occupy me for the right the rest of my life. Yeah, and I'll I'll do other songs, but as they come, a song comes, I'll follow it and I'll do it. But yeah, I think I'll just stick with this really, and I'll I'll, I'll try and refine it, and I'll try and get closer to the uh, the truth on it. And it's it's the story of me being me, and mm-hmm. it, yeah, that's kind of self centered, but it's also a story about social attitudes. It's also a story of involving secrets and all that kind of stuff. I think it's got enough to be like my uh, my statement. If that sounds really terrible, but. A man, a man in his fifties discovers who he is. That's it. Let it be. Right. Dig a pony. Dig a pony. Absolutely. All I want is me. <laughs> yeah. What would you like to hype, man? If there's something you'd like to hype. Well, thank you. I'd like to hype my collection of songs called Songs from Be My Baby, which takes the suite of poems that I wrote about my birth and adoption and the story of how I came to be and how I, I suppose, dealt with a lack of identity all those years. I've turned that into a, a collection of tracks. I think I've got 22 in all. Um, so they'll probably come out as a download. We can download the whole thing and a shorter selection from the the overall piece. And they'll be coming out at some, I hope, I don't have any definite date, but I hope they're going to come out on a label based in Ottawa called The Beautiful Music at some point in 2022. So I, I've, I've put a lot into maybe too much. I, I don't know. But I've, I've put a lot of time, thought, and headspace into this more than I've done with anything else. So when this thing becomes real and downloadable and accessible, I'll, uh, I guess I'll realise it's actually happening. But uh, mm. if any of your listeners have been interested by anything we've been talking about today, I'd ask them to to keep an eye out for for that coming out later. And uh, well, I assume the podcast is going out in early 2022. So. Later this year, listeners, songs from Be My Baby will be made available. Yeah. Roy, thank you so much, man, for coming on. This is great. Well, thank you, Jason. It's been a real pleasure for me. We've talked for half the time of Get Back's <laughs> Running Time. Uh, yes. All right. Yeah. Cheers, so thank, thank you very much for <laughs> indulging me. I really appreciate it. Lovely to talk to you, Jason. Lovely to talk to you too, Roy. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Thank you. Many thanks to Roy. It was super cool to talk with him. And I appreciate his his generosity. Make sure you check out his music, because it's fab. Many thanks also to Joe MD for help with the intro, Wayne MD for the artwork, DJ Max in Tokyo for the theme music, and you for listening. If you'd like to start your own podcast, uh, follow the link in the show notes so that 
uh, Buzzsprout will know that we sent you. What else? You can join the conversation on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, uh, I'd be much obliged if you'd leave a rating and a, and a message or a review of some kind. Uh, it does help people find the podcast. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks again. And back in a couple of weeks with some more early shit. Cheers. Cheers.